0: According to the commentary by Ray Don Chong and Ron Perlman on the La Guerre des DVD, Cadi met his wife on the set of the film. She was an on-set nurse in Scotland, and Perlman is a godfather to their daughter.
1: That's beautiful. Are we talking the godfather? The
0: policeman isn't there to create disorder. The
2: policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, why is the truth? This guy's starting to get on my head. You want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them the go. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, my name is Andrew Stasoulis, and I am joined here with... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, and the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic... Up against the topic, or in the words of uh, a longtime listener, good friend of the show, Eric Freeman, sometimes uh, throw a glancing blow against the topic. <laughs> uh, thankfully, tonight we've got some solid haymakers landing with our theme for this week's some episode. sizzlers for you. Yeah, big time. <laughs> no one missed this week <laughs> you love to see it <laughs> so i should probably tell everyone what that topic is uh last week i mentioned at the end of our episode that you know uh, i was reflecting on on the news and and it's 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 not good for for the for the climate right we all are are i hope well aware of that at this point but you know last week i i was specifically looking at those uh, nightmarish photos coming out of the Northeast, out of New York, right? And those crazy Canadian wildfires that were sending off uh, massive clouds of smoke spreading down into the American Northeast. Pretty wild stuff. And you know, it got me reflecting on the fact that we've tangled with certain elements and certain geographic locations on the pod previously, but one we haven't touched on necessarily in a topic, though we've certainly had films that have presented us with this. Um, (laughs) Fire, fire, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire. So I asked the boys to bring me movies about that, uh, that particular element, one that can, of course, be quite soothing, quite helpful, can literally save our lives, keep us going but one that can also set everything around us ablaze including ourselves um fire we all know it. we're all familiar <laughs> with it don't need to say much more about it i think yeah and that's it's hot, yeah, it's, hot it's hot and that's what they brought me some hot some hot movies with uh with good fire in it so without further ado let's bring them out uh marsh you had the earlier film if i'm not mistaken so why don't you tell everybody what you
0: brought sure i found this to be a little harder than than most weeks you know i was i was probing a lot and i just wasn't you know nothing was really hitting me uh at all. And and maybe it was because I first started my quest trying to find a movie about a pyro. I thought that would be fun, you know, sort of delve into the psyche of someone who wants to set things on fire. But I really wasn't enchanted by by any of the choices. And so ultimately, I thought, you know, let's just deliver. Let's just burn it all down. And and I was between uh, in old Chicago, the Henry King film where they burned down Chicago, the only film about the Great Fire. I um, thought about bringing that, but really, it's just the last twenty minutes. The rest is kind of like, you know, big ensemble en- drama. Yeah, it's just yeah. like a pot boiler, you know, Chicago politics and stuff like that. Good film, but uh, there was another film that had a massive fire uh that i hadn't seen and when i was texting with ryan and he confirmed he hadn't seen it either uh it was one of those where it was like well here comes like the uh you know art house canon checklist let's uh let's just check this one off you know and that film is letter never sent from 1959 the soviet film directed by mikhail kalatozov um it is a adventure film about a group of geologists and explorer types who are looking for diamonds in the taiga in Siberia. Uh, and it's very much uh, on the one hand, sort of this like uplifting kind of like utopian idea of you know finding these resources for the Soviet Union. And the first part of the film really focuses on that and, and their characters as well until of course uh fire you know it (laughs) happens they're in the forest you know and they uh after making their discovery uh they are set back by a very serious raging forest fire and the second part of the film then is a tale of survival as they try to navigate this you know Horrific landscape of, of death and destruction and fire all around um, It's an insane looking movie and if you've seen uh You know any of the later films by kalatozov like the cranes are flying or i am cuba uh you know especially when he was working with Sergei urosevsky uh they have a very crazy visual style um and i feel like i should give some background on on that because kalatozov had a really crazy career that uh Although he's known as a sort of leading light of sort of Thaw-era, Khrushchev-era filmmaking, uh, he actually began in the heyday of Soviet montage in the late 20s and the early 1930s. He soon, though, ran afoul of the authorities, and he was banned from filmmaking, uh, but not from film activities, in which he was sort of then, like, shuffled into being a bureaucrat, for the soviet system and of course they had dreams in the 1930s of building a a soviet hollywood right there were plans there were dreams for that and ultimately kalatozov was sort of you know working in the industry trying to bring certain hollywood practices to uh, this very different film industry in, in the Soviet Union, uh, and it ultimately even led to him living in Hollywood in the early 1940s as a special envoy to uh, Hollywood to learn the secrets of the trade that he could bring back to the motherland um he ultimately through some patriotic war films and other socialist realism got back in the uh, good graces of comrade stalin um but it wasn't until after stalin's death that kalatozov really had his moment and he's considered really like the godfather of, you know, whatever you want to call this period, the Thaw period, the Soviet New Wave. Uh, He occupies a similar place as like Jean-Pierre Melville does to the French New Wave. He was this older guy who was showing You know, this new generation of filmmakers, like, it's a new era. We can do crazy things. We can uh, make movies the way we want to make them now that Joe's gone, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And ultimately, yeah, that's sort of uh, the legacy of Kalatozov. A lot of people sort of draw a direct line from him to young filmmaker Andrey Tarkovsky, who uh, sort of ripped off Kalatozov in Ivan's childhood in more ways than one. Um but yeah, wow, Letter Never Sent, hadn't seen it. I'd seen, you know, Cranes Are Flying, I'd seen I Am Cuba, and uh this is up there, you know, with them. It's a, it's a dazzling, mythic, epic, crazy work of uh of cinema, you know? Pure cinema, poetic cinema, as they say, uh, in Russia, right? This film is is the Tarkovsky you know, screen grab, you know, when he's got his uh, hand over his face and it just says like poetic cinema, you know, <laughs> like that's, uh, that's what's going on here. And uh, there's also some, some, you know, sort of elements of silent cinema that are still intact in this film that I think are fascinating and I'm, I'm stoked to talk about. But yeah, there's, uh, as far as fire is concerned, uh, there's a lot of it, you know, um, and it's very bad and very scary. Uh, in this film, so maybe that'll provide a little difference to uh, our double feature here tonight. Anyway, that's, uh, that's Letter Never Sent from
2: 1959. Hell yeah. Ryan, why don't you light it up for us now? What did you bring to the podcast this week?
1: Sure. Well, before I begin talking about the film, I'd like to start with a quote from the oh, no. late great Cormac McCarthy, who passed away just the other day, and um, to be honest, this this passage, this very brief passage, um, really I think sets the stage quite well for the film that I I selected this week. Um, so here's a little bit of fire poetry from uh, the great Cormac McCarthy: The flames sawed in the wind, in the embers. Paled and deepened, and paled and deepened, like the blood beat of some living thing eviscerate upon the ground before them. And they watched the fire, which does contain within it something of men themselves, inasmuch as they are less without it, and are divided from their origins, and are exiles. For each fire is all fires, and the first fire and the last ever to be. So that's from Blood Meridian. Rip, Rip King, thank you. Uh, yes, now, now on to the film, which, you know, you had mentioned that Marsh's film was the earlier of the two films <laughs> in the sense of the year that it was released. But let me tell you, I believe the film I selected has to be as far back as yeah. we've ever gone in the uh, timeline of, of our history, if not prehistory here. So... The film I selected, The Quest for Fire, from 1981. In this case, you know, Marsh's film Fire found our group of Russian scientists. Here, we've got some folks looking for fire. We've got a big grand quest uh, looking for fire. So let me me set the stage of what this film is. So this film is set in Paleolithic Europe 80,000 years ago. We're in caveman time here. And, you know, this film decides instead of trying to transcribe the caveman experience to modern language, they decide to entirely opt out of it. There's a little bit of silent film influence in Marsh's film. I'll just get right off the bat here and mention my film has no dialogue, it does have some fake language that was invented for the film specifically by the writer Anthony Burgess, the the author of A Clockwork Orange, which is kind of a funny little happenstance here, um, especially since this film is a French and Canadian co-production, so it's funny that they wouldn't have grabbed Mr. Burgess over. So this film stars... Oh, Panama's here.
0: Oh, goddammit. This so film stars Panama. Dude, Panama yeah. wouldn't have lasted a day against the, the Waluigi or whatever, dude. I mean, come on. <laughs>
1: Wagaboo. (laughs) 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 Um, Where was I? Yeah, so yeah, as I said, this film film is a French Canadian co production directed by Jean Jacques Anand, who is uh, known as we we were kind of talking off air a little bit. Directed uh, The Bear. He's directed a few other, like, nature focused film so it's a similar territory for for this guy it stars in his uh debut role Ron Perlman and uh, also has Everett McGill in it Everett had been in a few films at this point but I remember that was something that was really attractive for me when I picked it out I'm like okay a caveman film we got the two guys with like really chiseled features dudes yeah. that already kind of look like cavemen so it's sort of like very fitting that they'd be cast in this film and you know, the film starts with this introductory text that I think is actually, like, pretty helpful for just describing what this movie is, where it mentions for early humans, you know, fire was an object of great mystery since no one had mastered its creation. And that's what we're seeing here with this group of cavemen. They don't know how to make fire. So if they, they had to steal fire from nature and it was something they had to shelter, keep alive hide it from wind and rain and to guard it from other tribes who are trying to steal that fire and that's what happens at the beginning of this film their lives are threatened because another tribe that's much more (laughs) ape-like arrives to steal their fire and they have to flee after many of the members of their tribe are gored and they're all fucked up and then once their fire goes out Ron Perlman, Everett McGill and one other guy have to go on a quest to find some fire and eventually you know they come across some cannibals they come across some other tribes who are given names and even these characters have names in this movie which I think is funny even though I don't think they're ever said out loud Um, but they do link up with a woman that they save and I bring that up just because I do think it's kind of funny that both of these movies are about three men and a woman sort of either you know fleeing from fire or fleeing to it Uh, They're both big big journeys and yeah so this film it's it's a curious thing it kind of feels like a sword and sandal movie at times it definitely relies on that a little bit to kind of carry it with its style. It is something that you have to warm up to. I think it's kind of hard not to laugh for the, the first chunk of it, but I got to admit, I, I was kind of won over by it. I had a lot of fun. It is like not scientifically accurate at all. You'd have to obviously just sort of assume that, but we've got tribes living in pretty close proximity to each other here that radically different levels of advancement uh evolutionary wise and uh, just with their tools and everything like that but it's a cool looking movie you know shot in scotland shot in kenya shot in canada kind of shot all over um and yeah it's just it seems pretty singular for what it's worth i've never really seen anything like it um so yeah excited to to quest with you boys and talk talk more about it
2: thank you ryan thank you both uh, yeah, I'd seen both of these movies Typical. before.
1: Wow, that's funny.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's why when you sent them in, I was like, good picks. These are going to be fun to discuss. <laughs> uh, uh, Letter never sent. I'd seen much more recently than uh, Quest for Fire. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie. Love it. So yeah, it was very, very happy because coincidentally, just like a week or two ago, I shit you not, I was sitting around and I was like, man, I really want to watch Letter Never Sent. I just had this thing where I was like, I want to rewatch it. I own the Criterion Collection. Yeah. And I was like, as soon as I'm done with my grades, I'm going to like watch Letter Never Sent. And so when you picked it, I was just like, Jesus Christ, something something spooky going on out here. <laughs> um, so very happy to revisit a movie that I was planning to revisit believe it or not uh quest for fire um hilariously now, reflecting on it, uh, I was shown when I was in Cub Scouts Whoa. by one of the, like, den moms. We would have, like, these sleepovers. Yeah. And one of the mothers, you know, we all went over to this kid's house. I remember it. And She was just like, you know, oh, Cub Scouts. And I guess trying to get us to connect with you know, camping and the idea of like, oh, you got to learn how to build a fire and that sort of thing. And she put this movie on There's a little more to it than that. A little, yeah. I mean, a <laughs> lot more to it than that, you know, for sure. And and we're going to get into it, but you know, I was probably like 10 years yeah. old.
1: Oh my God. 11 Yikes. years old.
2: And I, I obviously like I repressed a lot of it. So revisiting it now, I was just like, I can't fucking believe this lady yeah. When I was in Cub Scouts, you know, we were just fucking weeblos, and she put this on on a sleepover.
0: Maybe there know? was a
1: censored version, you know. God, I, you know, Cub I mean, I, then again, you know, it was the... <laughs> the grade school Cub Scout version. Yeah. yeah, then again, it was the
2: mid-90s, you yeah. know, people were still a little, you know... A little loose. They were still, yeah, a little loose about that kind of thing, so, yeah, uh, very, very happy to go back as an adult and be like, wow that was fucked up that that lady showed us quest for fire. But yeah, I have God. That explains so much.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. Does. it
2: does. <laughs> so, so yeah, this has been a fun week for me to, to revisit things that, you know, I, I love and, and potentially might've like given me some psychological damage from, um, as a young lad. But yeah, these are, these are really, this is a really good double feature, um, for the topic specifically, because, you know, I think, as you were describing in your intro, Marsh, it's kind of like tough, you know, when when you just have like this element like fire. Like, oh man, it's in just about every single movie in one form or another. So, so where can you take it? And when you start trying to think about movies that that really do focus on fire specifically as the subject matter, it's like you get a lot of disaster movies, of course, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we were joking, I think, even last week about the. What is it like, you know, Only the Brave or something like that, you know, which I still haven't seen, but
0: he plays Eric Marsh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Josh Brolin plays Eric Marsh in a movie about I think they're like smoke jumpers or something like that. Right. They're firefighters in the in the in the Pacific Northwest, I think, or some shit like that. But you uh, both were able to bring movies that deal with fire, that that fire is a, a central point of the film. And both are so much more than that. So much more than just movies about fire, even though characters are, of course, obsessed with fire in both of these movies. Uh, I think what makes these, and what makes this an interesting double feature, is sort of the ways that these movies speak to each other. And, And I guess, you know, for me going into it I was sort of thinking well they represent the two poles right as I was sort of saying in my intro right that that fire can be this very important sort of uh, sustenance to us that that fire brings life and that's certainly the setup of that prologue you mentioned in Quest for Fire right yeah. like this was a point when they needed fire the the the, the life of the tribe depended on it and so They're seeking it for comfort, for shelter, to keep them warm, to cook their food, whatever, right? And Letter Never Sent is about, boy, fire can really ruin everything. It can fuck up your whole day or geological mission. So fire also destroys. And yet, I was reflecting on it. And I actually think it's the opposite for these films. I would make the case, and maybe we can get into it tonight... (laughs) That Quest for Fire is more about fire's destructive capabilities, and that Letter Never Sent is more about what fire builds, how fire forges things. That's sort of the take that I have, you know, especially when you consider that the original French title for Quest for Fire is actually, they use the word guerre, which... Is war for fire. Mm. And I think reflecting on that, you know, Quest for Fire is a, is a, like a brutal movie. It's, it's a, as you described, it's, it's almost like a sort of like medieval combat film more than it is some sort of, you know, pseudo documentary exploration of, of what fire gives. But in this case, it's a resource that people are, killing each other over well i think yeah big time and i think it's yeah it's such a
0: it's such a matter of sort of perspective because for me you know quest for fire was you know my first time and it was a it was like ryan like you said it was an exhilarating experience i was laughing uh you know i mean like it really is so dumb and so fucking, <laughs> so fucking stupid on so many levels, and yet you know, like it, it's still very enjoyable, and and we'll we'll break it all down. But it really unlocked for me when I was like, who wrote this? You know, like like where did this this idea come from? Yeah, and when I found out that it was a novel published in 1911 by a Frenchman, I couldn't help but then think, like, of course, now this makes sense. This is written by a guy in like a dying empire of World War I Europe. Of course, he sees when he imagines the Paleolithic era, he imagines early 1900s Europe. You know, like all these actions, you know, like and that to me, I was like, okay, that really like unlocked my reading of the film, Um, because, again, he's just making all this up. So where where does this come from? It's his anxiety, you know, it's the anxieties of the era, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And he wrote a lot of sci-fi shit in the late 1800s and and whatever. Um, But that helped. And then, of course, like you said, Andy, like why you can interpret it in the reverse way is because Kalatozov has a much more communist, socialist, Soviet perspective, which is like looking for... uh, you know the the sort of good in this disaster you know well and
2: the 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 test the crucible of fire yeah. that heroes go through heroes that that can can show us what it means to be brave to be courageous to do your duty despite everything if we didn't have those tests we'd get fat and lazy like the capitalists,
1: you know? We, we right. The life. Yeah, the endurance of a real Russia. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You know? Especially
2: coming, at, you know, not even 15 years after the firestorm of World War II to, to reflect upon yeah. that, you know, that we are great because of what we went through and the fact that we came out the other side through sacrifice, through so much you know destruction it made us that much more resolved in our belief of our society of our system
1: you know yeah i thought it was funny how you're right because it it does admire the people so much and their strength and endurance and it also admires the systems that are set up to potentially save them from this catastrophe and how it's a big effort where bureaucracy does not slow it down, because the only really, you know, troubling factor for them is that their radio is working in only one direction. They're able to receive messages, but they're not able to call out and tell the folks where where they are. And I do think it's funny how much time is set aside for those people being like, okay, we're going to call you every two hours. We are going to give you constant updates. Like you can rely on us entirely. You know, it's like such a well-oiled rescue machine that does of course have extreme trouble finding them yeah, because they're not around. <laughs> it doesn't work, but you know, they make it clear, like we are doing everything we possibly can. They are so adamant and they are so like ready at the trigger all the time. And I love that that's never something that they're frustrated about, right? is the failures of their government or their rescue teams. But I think that's
0: also what makes the film really interesting. And I, I didn't really think about this too much until I read there's a Senses a of Cinema piece about Letter Never Sent. And it talks about the ways in which the film is actually like undercutting some of that sort of like Soviet ideology stuff, which is, of course, still there. Certainly Mm -hmm. on the surface, right? Uh, But there are these things, right? Like, Ryan, the the dissonance between, you know, receiving messages from the state and the state isn't hearing you, you Uh, know? Like, that's uh, a metaphor. But also there's a sort of, love triangle i wouldn't call it a love triangle but i'll I'll call it that for for ease uh there's a love triangle element that undermines the camaraderie of the group so there are things sort of like punctures in this sort of like perfect you know image and again that's part of like thaw era filmmaking where uh now especially it's like he they're they're individualizing these characters as well as well in a way that like previously wasn't done, right? So again, yeah. little Hollywood Western influence, you individualize the characters, which is then going to undercut, you know, that sort of socialist realism like checklist, you know. Uh, so it's it's both of these things at once. and that's yeah. why, of course, it's you know a great film. it's there's many layers to it. And he was certainly not a stranger to navigating. That system. He saw the worst of it, you know, and he also saw the best of it. He got the Stalin prize in like 1951, you know? So he literally was banned from filmmaking and given like the highest prize in filmmaking within 20 years. So um I feel like he better than anyone was like uniquely suited to like layering uh these sort of ideas. You know? And I,
2: I think taking that into account, you know, that 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 also just speaks to what happens in the film. You know, that these people go on this mission to find these diamonds and they struggle, they struggle. There's so much struggle, there's so much talk about failure and, and past failures, and then they do strike pay dirt, they find what they were looking for. The the diamond pipe, I think they kept referring to it as this, you know, yeah. this this vein of, of, of diamonds that, that show okay, there's there's more in this area. And it's in that moment of their great triumph, that they literally wake up the next day, and the entire forest around them is ablaze. Yeah. Success can suddenly be followed by an immediate catastrophe, that, that whatever happens to you today, like don't put any faith necessarily in tomorrow because one minute you're riding high, the next minute you are running for your fucking life from a force of nature consuming everything around you.
0: Equally applicable to Quest for Fire as well. Definitely. You know, those words, you know, because they have their ups and downs as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: Lots of them. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about that transition from no fire to so much fucking fire. In Letter Never Sent, I was really into, because I assumed that there would have been a great deal of buildup, you know, them talking about like, wow, it's been really dry. It's been really hot, <laughs> you know? You guys smell smoke? <laughs> yeah, just, just like some seeds planted throughout about the weather being ripe for a wildfire to break out. And it really is they just go to bed one night and they wake up and the entire forest is on fire yeah. that it has completely snuck up on them. And I think that that, that was really effective for me as a viewer just thinking about it too, because that's pretty much how that sort of thing goes, you know, like, sure, there are conditions where you can anticipate it coming, but it just spreads so rapidly. And to wake up in the middle of an inferno like that, um, of course, is inherently extremely cinematic, as is all fire. I mean, I guess that's also sort of kind of baked into this topic as well. You talked about, yeah, we've crossed paths with fire quite a bit because, yes, fire is great to look at. I, fire is cinematic when it's not even in a movie, if I'm just sitting at a campfire and staring at it or in the backyard of the Midwest watching a fire with a couple oh, of guys. Yeah. you know,
2: come on over.
1: Feels like a cinematic experience sitting there watching the flames, you know? we all have a little bit of pyro in us. Yeah, you know it's funny, John
2: John Dewey wrote a a book, you know, one of one of one of his books is is just on like the aesthetic experience, you know, and and sort of art and experience his whole point being that, you know, aesthetics are life. It's 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 the world around us. And in the very first chapter of the book, he uses fire as an example of one of the great like aesthetic pleasures that Mm. we all encounter so you know it it's it's not just cinematic right i mean art is uh excuse me fire is this this thing that has that that seems to always fascinate us that that grabs us and and it probably speaks to the very like primordial or primal essence of like how that became so ingrained in us from a very early evolutionary point of of building our entire existence around this fire, huddling around campfires, you know, spending your day searching for fire, or in this case, spending, God, months, I guess, or something. I mean, it's hard, hard to, to gauge the the time involved in this actual quest. Man, but. yeah,
1: and just imagine... It's funny that I'm even saying this like, man, imagine being a caveman. But like, imagine not knowing how to make fire and what an aesthetic experience fire then would feel like when your conception of it was something that is just granted to you by nature, that it's something you have to find and not something that you can really control too much because it just is something that is a gift that comes, you know, that's just crazy to think about. I mean, whenever
0: McGill sees how fire is made, his mind is fucking blown oh, yeah, he is yeah, fucking crying he's weeping this yeah. fucking caveman yeah. this crow man is just fucking weeping he cannot believe it dude you know that's
1: true wow I, so this is good actually thinking about it as an aesthetic experience because yeah whenever it mcgill sees fire being created he doesn't start you know hopping up and down smashing his fists into the dirt scratching and you know going nuts he does weep you know, he's, the, he's kind of a loud guy throughout the movie. He's intermittently just going like, oh, oh, oh. you <laughs> yeah. know, he's got the funniest of all the grunts, I think. Um, and in that moment, yeah, it, it takes him a little bit to actually audibly react. Instead, it is just tears because it's all coming together for him. And he sees an act of creation that he didn't know was in the power of like humans hands. Mm-hmm. Mm, just yeah. like seeing a movie for the first time in 1895
0: you know (laughs) absolutely much more important
1: or being there on opening night for quest for fire in 1981 (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it is it's the i think it's like a very funny movie to settle into you know because i'm just curious yeah how you all i mean marsh you kind of touched on it but just yeah andy how you felt when it started, because I, you know, the, what I had read about it too, I mean, I think the opening line of Dave Kerr's capsule is pretty much a hoot. That's (laughs) just like how he starts it, you know? And it's funny when I was looking at critical writing from the time, it seems that's how most people really talk about it. They're like, yeah, you watch it and it's really funny. And then you just find yourselves, you got into it, you know, eventually you're just won over and you're watching it. And I, you know. I don't check when I'm watching a film that often how much was left, but you know, quest for fire when I checked and I saw there was only like 15 minutes left, I was like, damn, this thing's flying by. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, I was, I was there for the roller coaster wide ride and I was curious how it would feel without really any dialogue. Uh, of course I've seen plenty of films without it, but in this situation I'm like, this is pretty limited. How much can they actually do? But there's something about the image itself and how, it's using so many storytelling styles that are so standard in, you know cinema of that era like the contemporary cinema of 1981 that it does just feel like a regular adventure film and it doesn't even matter what anybody's saying
0: yeah it's really heavily structured and and very carefully plotted i mean i think like one of the if I, if i was being like mean like I would knock this movie for being way too much of like a prepackaged Hollywood movie. Like it's right. about fucking caveman. It should look like an Alexi German film where you have like no sense of like space or contemporary thought understanding. You know, instead, this you know it's so just like a contemporary movie. You know, yeah. and they yeah. hit all their beats. They meet all these new people and it expand their knowledge. You know, um, but it's still. Such a weird, fucking committed movie that, yeah. like, again, it, it's still entrancing. Yeah, like- I
2: mean, it's, it's, it's. Obviously, I haven't read the source material, so I would be curious to see, you know, how that is arranged, how that is structured. But certainly, in what I've seen and what I what I've you know witnessed with this movie, I mean, it's basically just fucking like you know Joseph Campbell, yeah. but cave caveman, back. right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's. There is quite literally, I mean, the fucking title's "Quest for Fire." It's it's a quest, yeah. right? And there is a moment where you know when their flame gets extinguished and they're all sitting around despondent, like a woman like picks up in their tribe, just like picks up the vessel that that carries the the embers, you know, the flame, and just walks up and plants it in front of Everett McGill, right? And in in a way that says. This, this is, is your call. call. This, this is, is your call, call to quest, quest right? right? Will, Will you, you accept, accept it? it? Will, Will you, you go? go. And the, the, the chieftain of the tribe approaches him and, and gives him, through his grunts and gestures, that, that same encouragement of, of only you can save us. Only you can do this, right? And he gets He's his He's the buddies. chosen one. Yes, he's the Chosen mm. One, all right? So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's the typical fucking Joseph Campbell bullshit. They go on their quest. They rescue a princess. They 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 have to, you know, flee back, right? They're chased on their way back, all that Return shit. Return with the elixir, baby. Yeah, I mean, I forget all the specific Joseph Campbell terminology, but they're all fucking yeah. present. Crossing and, yes. the threshold, yeah, all that. You know, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Class. yeah. See, and that's my thing with it. You know, like, you mentioned the prologue. And it sets the stage, right? 80,000 years ago, all that bullshit. (laughs) And I was thinking, while I was sitting there, like, right off the bat, I I would give this movie extra marks if it didn't have that prologue. If it didn't set the stage that way. Because obviously, yes, it certainly helps on an information exposition level of being like, okay, where are we and when are we? But I think... I would like this movie so much more. I, I shouldn't say like it, but I guess I would I would give it so much more, I would give it more kudos if they didn't tell us when it was set. Like if it was just the images and we had to connect to them however we wanted. Is this the past? Is this the future, right? In that very alienating way that that I think would add so much more to it. Like, is this about us you know uh on the up or are we on the down as a species (laughs) you know when and honestly a movie that i i kept kind of coming back to while i was watching this uh was on the silver globe and i was thinking about you know the way that the the sort of like cavemen the neanderthals the primitive people of that movie were were depicted obviously being set again in the future but We go to the past when we crash on this planet, you know? And I think, again, that's what makes On the Silver Globe so brilliant is this confusion between our past, our present, and our future and questions about humanity and that sort of thing. And this movie, by telling us these are the cavemen, this is the past... It right off the bat to me, like it, it just like it it pulls a punch almost in how daring it could be to do all this stuff to not yeah. have dialogue to have these primitive people and these beasts and all this kind of stuff going on. You know, it's it's
1: very true because it's not a very reflective film. I think at the end of the day about the nature of humanity. That is, at no point when I was watching it was I thinking about our origins necessarily. I was only preoccupied with, I wonder if they're gonna get the fire back, or I wonder if they're gonna learn how to make fire all on their own, uh, and then they do. <laughs> you know, I yeah. was never really seriously considering, you know, what does it mean to be man? You know, who yeah. are we at our core? <laughs> Well, I think, yeah,
0: that's why it's also fascinating because that question is much more uh, brilliantly addressed in Monty Hellman's Iguana, which stars Everett Everett McGill, McGill, you know, like that is an actual very thoughtful movie about the nature of man and primitivism and violence and all this stuff. Uh, and then I was seeing this as, like, the Disney version of, you know, of Iguana or whatever, uh, essentially. But shout out Everett McGill, you know, thanklessly being cast as, you know, prehistoric man in his, early, his big early roles.
1: I generally think Everett McGill and Ron Proman are very good in this movie with what they, I mean, had to work with. It's, it's got to be one of those challenges for an actor, too. is one of those movies, right, where it's like five hours of makeup every day before they can even start shooting the damn thing, uh, and then just being caked and all that stuff. I think the third guy in the trio is the one that most distracts. Damir El-Khadi. Yeah, he's the one that like most distractingly look like a guy from 1981. Uh, and I think it was because of how he was just open-mouthed and his bright, beautiful blue eyes, you know? He didn't really—he doesn't have those caveman features that uh, they really highlight for Everett and Perlman.
2: Yeah, because as you pointed out, I mean, yeah, like, McGill and Perlman, like, both have these, like, just very— pronounced brows, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're they they look like they've got just very thick skulls even when they're not in makeup. You know, they do, as Marsh said, they are Cro-Magnon men, basically. I mean Pearlman especially like those guys, his eyes are sunk deep into that skull. Right? Yeah. And it yeah it, you said it took a lot of makeup, but Pearlman probably didn't need as much makeup as some of the other guys. And and we should point out that the film did win an Academy Award for its makeup. Oh no. It's an Academy Award-winning film.
0: Wow! The wow. makeup on the elephants. I'm sorry. It was so bad, dude. You know, I guess it's more costuming, but there's a point in the film when woolly mammoths come, you know? And they're just elephants with, like, carpets glued onto them. It's, like, so bad. I yeah. mean, maybe that's what a woolly mammoth looked like. I wasn't there, but I was just like, Woo, yeah, the cavemen, a lot more attention to detail went into these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that note of Pearlman... I love that he clearly had something. He had like this actor thing going on in his mind where he was going to be eating or cleaning always. Like he yeah. has these tics. Uh, And they're more pronounced than the other characters who also, you know, they're snacking on leaves and whatever they can find. But he clearly has, like, some thing (laughs) thing going on with his character that he's developed, you know?
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like he started taking it more seriously after they, like, began in earnest, because this was his first film. And a little anecdote I had read was that Perlman thought this was just going to be garbage. He thought this was going to be, like, a joke movie, some B-movie trash. And then he met the director and realized... Oh, this guy's like a real filmmaker. This guy's oh, like this artist. taking it
2: seriously. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: then like they had a contentious relationship at the beginning, and then as it went on, and saw how committed the director was, Ron Perlman was like, "Oh, okay, you know, I could give it my all." And I mean, it sounds like they both did. The other thing I read was that Everett and Ron Perlman both got frostbite while making this movie um, because of the intensity of some of the conditions that they had to deal with. Which oh, is yeah. Crazy to think about.
2: I I thought about that. There were a few moments where I was watching them running around and in some of the places, some of the locations, you know, I mean, yeah, they're in the fucking highlands and shit like that. And like, they're running around barefoot. And I I did have this thought, like, what kind of, like, footwear are they giving these guys? I mean, obviously, like, in some situations, they probably give them something to wear if you're not going to see their feet. But, like, they're scaling, like, rocks and and running around through caves and marshes. And, I mean, they're just right there in their
1: bare fucking feet.
2: I mean, I kept thinking about that. Wouldn't (laughs) let you do that today. No, (laughs) no. I'm pretty
1: sure I read that they were thinking about making shoes for them. Like fake caveman yeah, feet Jews, to give them like yeah. giant feet, um, and then they they got rid of that idea. Uh, so yeah. yeah, that those are just their bare feet. And the yeah, the third guy's got his, his cock and balls out every now and then too, uh, which had to have been pretty cold for him. I don't think Everett or Ron Perlman show us the family jewels at any moment. Well, well, we see other things. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we
2: see we see plenty of <laughs> other things.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the elephants, though, the woolly mammoths. Um, That really tickled me. I thought that was very funny because at first both Molly and I thought they were puppets, you know, or some sort of animatronic thing. And then you get a close-up, and you're like, they put a rug on top of a bunch of elephants, Yeah, which I think is really funny. It's similar when they put – they just, like, glue – giant fangs on the lions to make them saber-toothed tigers <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah and i kind of wish there were actually more extinct species throughout the film i was hoping for dodos or like the big you know giant land crawling sloths you know i thought maybe we would get more they kind of abandoned that thread early the extinct creatures um but yeah exceptionally funny the circus elephants i read too that originally they were going to shoot in iceland and one of the reasons they didn't was because just before production, there was some new laws that made it much more difficult to bring four-legged animals into Iceland. Yeah. Uh, and then that delayed things, and then a volcano erupted near the ranch that they were filming, and had the elephants been there, they would have died from the eruption. So, so they, why they have laws. Right. So the Iceland government was being a little thoughtful, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Situation. But
2: you know, I, I guess too, Ryan, going back to your un, your earlier question, because I I I, I, I might have just sort of drifted far far afield from it. But you know, I think that's the hardest part for this movie is actually just figuring out the tone. Like, yeah. Are they playing it for laughs or are they playing it straight? And and hearing that other stuff too about like Pearlman and the director, you know, it it does make me wonder, you know, were there like language barriers? I mean, like no pun intended for what's going on in this movie, <laughs> but but that people were walking onto the set expecting one thing and then, you know, the director's trying to to lead them into an, another direction because there are moments where I feel like they're intentionally trying to get the audience to laugh. Like there's, there's slapstick comedy that emerges. In fact, you know, through their like process of, of, you know, this quest, you know, they, they meet, they encounter, yes, tribes that are far more primitive, far more behind them in the evolutionary process. And then they do encounter a tribe that is ahead of them in The evolutionary process and it's like through this meeting with Don chong's character they they kind of get i mean it's sort of a a silly phrase to use but they they almost get a little more civilized by her as she kind of teaches them about like laughter like there's this moment where i think ron perlman's like sitting around when they're all you know like just you know on a break or something and like a rock falls off of something and like bonks him on the head and she starts cracking up you know she's like this is fucking funny like this guy just got they're not into modern
0: humor yet right and they're,
2: they're just staring at her like like what the fuck is this they've never heard laughter before is that how you
1: interpreted that I,
0: yeah is, that's how is, i that, read yeah. what that because it comes back later and one and
1: he gets hit on the head again and then they all laugh yeah, yeah. i thought it was more they just didn't see the humor in it i mean they like don't animals, know what humor is like monkeys laugh
0: yeah well not in this film did you you know didn't yeah. see <laughs> ever <Edward> mcgill laughing
1: <laughs> interesting okay yeah no i th- that makes sense um, then I guess I would just call that another like weird scientific inaccuracy because again, but well, monkeys laugh, apes laugh. That's you know? the
2: whole thing. There's no scientific <laughs> right, accuracy right. with this. I mean, it's like there, there, I mean, it's not just this, there's a fucking moment later where she teaches the guy how to do missionary sex, right? Like,
1: I mean, oh, and yeah. that's like a whole,
2: it's <laughs> like a whole, there's this a whole can of worms to, to bring up here. But like this movie's treatment of sex is, th- and this is the big thing that I was sort of getting at in, you know, this this woman showing it to us when we were like Cub Scouts, because, right <laughs> you know, this movie is also very preoccupied with, with sex and with a very primal animalistic depiction of sex that I think in this day and age, revisiting this movie now, like what, almost, what, you know, 40 years later or something like that, like that's a whole other thing of being like, how are we handling this? How are we dealing with this? You know, because man, <laughs> like, Oh
1: boy. You know, I mean, they're cavemen. What do you expect? Yeah. Well, what do you expect from yeah, cavemen? Well, you know, but they that's don't really... the problem is there's
0: a scene in the film where, you know, they, they're chasing the fire of this, this other tribe of terrifying gingers. And, <laughs> you know, they, uh, uh, they find, a, like, like, a dead fireplace, you know, and that's an amazing scene because they, you know, they're they're stupid, so they don't understand, like, where fire comes from, so they're just, like, rubbing ash all over themselves and, like, rolling around <laughs> in this fireplace yeah. to, like, who knows, get it started again or or, or just, you know just get that ashy feeling back, you know? (laughs) But they start, like, chowing on, like, the remains of what's in that fire, and then they see a human skull, and they're like, ew, cannibalism, and, like, throw the skull away. So, like, there's that, and then you're gonna, like... You know, again, and none of it makes any fucking sense. (laughs) Right, yeah, like, they have
1: those principles. We would never eat our fellow man. We, you know, respect each other. But at the same time, yeah, they just fuck like dogs. They just, they see someone bend over and they run over and they bark and then they just, they get to it. Exactly,
2: so. And while, on a certain level, like, I appreciated it's, it's, it's you know, desire not to sort of like sugarcoat what they view as like, well, look, this is what sex was like when we were basically still animals, you know, like it does get a little murky when then you do try to introduce this, like, this refinement of that sex through <laughs> Ray Don Chong of her being like, uh, yeah. no, what what about like this? Where, like, this movie like shows so, these yeah, what people if you learned
0: how to love instead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, know?
2: that's what it is. It's like, it's like, it's a quest for fire, sure, but it's not. It's also a quest for laughter. It's a quest for love. It's a quest for female pleasure. It's a quest for, for you know, language. It's a quest for story, narrative, for humanity, then, like. Right, all that shit, you know? But, I mean, like, that's where it's, like... That's what I was saying earlier when I was kind of like, yeah, this movie's about fire, but it's really more, you know, trying to also be like, and look how we grew through this whole journey, you know? It's not the fire, it's the friends we made along the way. I mean, like, that's also what is is yeah. certainly going on here, you know? Um, but, yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, when she teaches him like Missionary Sex that's when I was really like this is this is yeah this is one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen and and for him to even just kind of like get it you know like oh yeah all right you know but it is also then kind of funny because while that's happening like Ron Perlman and the other caveman are are like watching they're like looking and Perlman's character kind of gets like turned on by it you know and he's kind of like oh man this is making me horny and then he kind of reaches out to the other guy and like puts his hand on his leg
1: almost like maybe we should try this, I was thinking you know? the same thing I thought they were like <laughs> hey why don't we not a bad idea let's try this out <laughs> yeah yeah you know <laughs> of course it doesn't go anywhere but yeah you know. yeah would have been great
2: to just see a big orgy break out during the, the, <laughs> yeah. the quest for fire.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's you know again a, a strong connection point. You know, to Letter Never Sent already, as was pointed out, not just the sort of group dynamic of of three, uh, you know, manly men and, and and one woman, but yeah, the sort of sexual tension, uh, which again, in the in the context of like when Letter Never Sent. Uh, came out not a common thing that sort of like psychosexual sort of triangle that develops. And we should lay out mm-hmm. maybe the characters, uh, more specifically cause we haven't really done that, but it's, it's important of course, cause they're all sort of archetypes, but then they're sort of, you know, uh, Dove into a little deeper than that, but uh, we have Constantine, who's the leader of the exposition, who's basically like a workaholic, uh, who's just obsessed with, you know, finding this resource for the Soviet Union, and his uh, letters to his wife are one of the titular uh, letters perhaps we can talk about the other letters that appear in the film but he you know in we get his voice over as he's writing this letter throughout the movie because as of course we're informed uh he didn't he didn't send it off before they got off the plane he messed up and so uh we do get quite a few sequences throughout the film of Voiceover narration, his flashbacks, and like superimpositions to the motherland, to his wife, to the home front. Vera, родная моя, в попыхах я забыл отправить тебе письмо. Всему виной сумасшедший разлив сибирских рек.
2: Мы приземлились чуть ли не в воду. В этой суматохе я замешкался, а самолет улетел.
0: Then, of course, we have Sergei, who's the sort of like soldier, you know, the The guy, the muscle and implied. He's the only one who it's explicitly implied. Like he saw lots of shit. In the Great Patriotic War, and he's a very lonely man who's clearly seen like millions of dead bodies, but yeah. like, but like the uh, cavemen in Quest for Fire, he's never loved, and so he develops uh, a crush on Tanya, played by Tatiana Samulo- Samulova, who became famous for being in The Cranes Are Flying, of course. Um, who is a young, sort of perky, idealistic, you know, sort of young Soviet woman, and her boyfriend, Andre, the hipster intellectual who's much younger than the other two rugged men uh, around their campfires. And so, yeah, Sergei, uh, the lonely ex-soldier and guide, and who's very cynical at that. This is like the 10th expedition he's led, and none of them have resulted in any diamonds of any kind. Um, and so, yeah, he develops a crush uh, on Tanya, and it never really, it, it almost Materializes into something more, something dangerous, perhaps. But... Something
2: like got a quest for fun. So,
0: yes, but uh, <laughs> they they pull back at at that moment, and it sort of never happens. And his, uh, you know, his love remains unrequited. Although later he does say to her, uh, "Thanks for the feelings," mm-hmm. which is insane. Honestly, one of my Crazy like, favorite <laughs> like favorite moments in like any movie now is just this hardened. Soviet soldier, forest guide, just being like, "That was sick when I felt this thing," you know, on this trip. Like that's what that, that's what yeah. he remembers. That's like, kind of how it
1: feels whenever McGill is like talking um, to the woman in uh, in In Quest for Fire. It does seem like Sergey also would be a guy that would have to be like taught what missionary is. You know, I think oh, yeah. that's like one way we <laughs> can
2: characterize him. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. But, but yeah, you know, I mean like these, and this is again, like you said, it's, it's, it's a similar sort of, uh, on the surface, you kind of look at both of the movies and go like, oh, it's a similar kind of setup, right? The, the men, the lady, each of them as kind of this you know, this archetype. And it's like a similar dynamic in Quest for Fire. Everett McGill, the the leader of the group, Ron Perlman, the muscle, and the other guy, the sort of like dork, I guess, you yeah. know, the, the, the geek of the yeah. crew. And the woman as a strangely kind of like civilizing force amongst all of them, this, this binding agent, if you will, which is, of course, in the case of her uh, Letter Never Sent, a very like, A very typical, um, you know, a very sort of typical element in a lot of Russian film is always the sort of like the strong woman ideal that, you know, the the boys look up to, you know, And, and both the... The, it's a very it's a big trope in Soviet cinema, like the woman at home, right? So you know this this ideal that that you're out on a mission, but
1: you're 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 hoping to get home to her, and you're hoping to do right for her. It's funny. One thing I was thinking about with Letter Never Sent in this in the sense of comparing these movies as with their scientific inaccuracies, not necessarily that Letter Never Sent. Uh, it has like these rampant inaccuracies or anything, but I, it was funny, at least to me, the way it was translated, that it didn't seem like any of this dialogue was really written by geologists at any point. And I did think it was funny whenever they were comparing samples or talking about what they were doing. They were only ever going as far as saying things like, look at how interesting this sample is. Or, you know, we did the research. We have the study that says diamonds should be here. Uh, The the conditions are correct. The theory, I believe it. It's true. Um, But they like never provide any sort of like concrete info because sometimes I like when there's movies about scientists, right, how there's less of jargon that um, I can't follow at all. And I was surprised that there wasn't really any of that at all here. It was more mythic, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, it's very Soviet cinema's
0: for the people, you know, it's not about jargon, you know, right, it's, about, right. it's about these feelings.
2: But also I I don't I don't believe that that at the time in, you know, 1959 in, in Russia that their science might have been any more, you know any more scientific than, <laughs> than what than we that. see here yeah. which was them just being like yeah geological survey said there should be diamonds out there let's just send people to start digging and panning like 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 dudes in the gold rush you know and it's like if you find it then you mark it and then we're going to bring in more gear more crew i mean like again this isn't far removed from the times of like Stalin's Russia where they literally would just take people and forcibly like put them into the the worst areas of russia to try to quote pioneer to try to establish new areas to live and a lot of those quote expeditions ended in total disaster of people just like just just dying in the hundreds as they would just sort of send them off with picks and shovels and be like all right you know like uh, like something out of uh, comrades you know like the people being sent to australia i mean they were they were penal colonies essentially but but under the guise of like expansion and growth and scientific discovery and
1: naturalization and all that kind of stuff you know right. like when in this case, it's it's much more romantic. They're act, they're literally dreaming of diamonds, and they talk about how they're going to be happy for the rest of their lives if they can encounter it. You know, it is much more mythic. Yeah, and
0: it's it's also kind of like I guess this is a a, a bad way to characterize it, but it's ripped from the headlines because diamonds were discovered in Siberia in the 1950s, yes. like ah. just a few years before. Letter never sent. There were like two big discoveries, and one of them led to you know a massive mine that was there uh, for fifty years. um So there's like you know again like taking a an achievement and then you know turning it into a film, Hollywooding the, yeah. the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, and that's like that's very clearly the case here, and that's where like the yes, the 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 Soviet poetic realism propaganda comes through. You know, we get those moments where they are explaining, like, why what they're doing is important. That it isn't just people off on a... A little, you know, jaunt to, to look for diamonds for jewelry and that sort of thing. Like, these mm-hmm. are not those kinds of diamonds. I mean, they very specifically say, this is to make sure that we, as a people, can can free ourselves from dependence on foreign diamonds, so that we can use them for our space program, so that we can, you know, use these diamonds for other technological reasons and that sort of thing. So they, they do make sure that that much is clear, but again, I I don't believe that it probably was any different than people literally just digging holes in the ground and being like found (laughs) some you know great like I mean we do
0: see them just like taking pickaxes to the ground like just dig here they're digging trenches you know um it reminds me that I saw this film described as the anti-treasure of the Sierra Madre you know it's like this instead of this completely cynical quest, you know, lust for for gold, uh it's the opposite, you know, it's just like the purest of intentions. But again, I think that's where w- this film really becomes fascinating because again, I was thinking back after like reading that piece um and thinking like, yeah, is is it is it worth it? You know, I feel like the film isn't a 100% sold that like that was this great sacrifice, you know? So uh, mm. I'm I'm still unsure about that.
2: Yeah, it does like walk a really fine line if you dig into the, a lot of like the lines even that the characters say. And uh, you talked about layers. And I think there's there's, again, like multiple ways of reading a lot of what they say about the journey that they're on, the mission that they're on. I mean, there's a point later in the film where, One of the characters says, literally, like, our lives do not belong to us. Of course, you could read that as this very noble Soviet mindset of, like, it's about the group. It's not about the individual, right? But then it's also like, well, we are members of this scientific, you know, team. And we get ordered to go out to, like, the harshest area in the world and told, dig. And you can't say no, right? You can't refuse this mission. Your lives don't belong to you they belong to the state and even again in this question you have of you know was it worth it was it not like the the, you know Kostya later in the film like when everything has gone horribly wrong and and they've already lost i think two members of their team they both lost you know uh uh stepan in the in the inferno and then andre basically like crawls off to die on his own because of some foot injury or something like that. Um, you know, he sacrifices himself because he's like, hey, if you keep dragging me along, you will die. And and he basically, you know, commits suicide or whatever, suicide by nature. Um, but Kostya, reflecting on all this, says, we've found too much to lose, and we've also lost too much. And so it's like this weird, again, like this sort of like interesting dichotomy that that works both ways of of them being like yes this was this was all worth it and no this wasn't worth it right like where do you stand and again like i guess it goes back to something you said earlier it's like perspective and that openness that new openness of this this time in russia that you can reflect that you can question right did we lose too much right or or are are all these sacrifices worth it in the long run well
1: who's to say really i guess i guess one question i have maybe for you marsh if you know is just a little bit of like how how did they do this this movie like how like how much of this is a set if any was it just, like, really controlled? A lot of it was a set? Yeah. Because I was trying to tell... Because there are some sets that are, like, unmistakably... They're outside, and they've set an insane controlled burn here. And I was just curious if you came across anything of note about that. Because it's, it's always incredible when you watch something as far back, even as, like, the 60s, and just being like, I have no fucking clue how they could have done this oh, i mean just yeah. technically it's just pure wizardry the
2: the inferno when they like emerge from their tent and they first are like looking around them like that is nuts like how much shit is fully ablaze around yeah. them and even just like as they're they're fighting to get out of it like everything around them is on fire they are literally like touching trees that are 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 just Totally in flames. I mean, it is nuts how they achieve that, whether, again, on a like a a studio set or like, yeah, just literally burning Siberian forests. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I couldn't find any like actual
0: numbers, but uh, a significant chunk was shot in the Moss Film Studios. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's certainly a testament to the film that like a lot of that's not really that obvious, you know, to to be to be honest. Like there's some times when you can tell there's a map because like the background isn't really moving the way it should be, you know, like in the taiga. Uh, you know, a forest moves. It's not static, obviously. You can tell when you can see that, but like for the most part, there's a lot of telephoto shots and there's a lot of like shots with obscured visions and they're up close with the characters and you can't really tell whether they're on location or not. But yeah, I imagine, you know, it's, it's a good mix of both, yeah. you know, certainly. Yeah.
2: And the, the craftsmanship is incredible for them to, to even like create that confusion you're talking about or that inability to, to recognize what is, you know, outside or inside,
1: I guess a student mm-hmm. set. And I just, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the safety measures you would have to go through for something like this. I mean, I just wonder about the amount of injuries that some of the actors or even just some of the technicians may have walked away from, if any, but it just seems like it would be something that happened. I mean, I mentioned there was the frostbite with Everett McGill and Ron Perlman um, and You know they went through the ringer, but it doesn't seem like anything that the folks in this movie go through. Like what happened to people's lungs in this movie? Just the amount of smoke that they were probably inhaling.
2: I kept thinking that. I was just like, I mean, they are they're just there's smoke everywhere. I mean, it's. I just
0: kept thinking, like, you know, who made this movie? Like people who won World War Two.
2: Exactly. Well, know? yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this ain't shit. Some of these people were probably Stalingrad, dude. Like, it's a walk in the park
0: by yeah. comparison. I couldn't help. I couldn't help. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, too, because, like, there's also shots in uh, Letter Never Sent that are, like, so fake. Like, Weimar expressionism fake, you know, like with this, like the sun and the like the black sun in the background, and they're like walking on fucking like fog. It's insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it even goes like into unreality as well, which is certainly something I appreciate about it. But we should also say, too, like most of the movie is dolly shots, you know, again, it's sort of like moving, you know, and I know. He loved Eisenstein. But it's sort of moving Soviet cinema into a more, like, camera-oriented uh, mode because, like, Dude, that's what this film is, there's you a, know? There's a
2: ton yeah. of handheld. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, the yeah. handheld, is it really struck me uh, again, like, revisiting yeah. it. Trey
0: Modern, yeah. yeah,
2: I mean, again, it's 1959, and, like, they're just running around in the forest with, with a handheld camera. I mean, and and some very, like, dynamic, choreographed handheld as well that was, was very sick. I mean, like, there's a part earlier in the film where Stepan and Andre go off on their little hunting, you know, man-to-man moment where they're going to talk about this... This letter, this other letter that wasn't sent, the letter to Tanya that Stepan wrote, and uh, there's this moment of of danger where we wonder if Stepan is gonna, you know, take advantage of this moment and, and kill Andre for for Tanya, like just rub him out and get him yeah, get him Dick out of the Chaney picture. Dick Cheney moment. Yeah, Dick Cheney you know? <laughs> moment, dude. Because like we get introduced to the hunting shot like it cuts to them just like in the forest and the camera's just like on Stepan with his shotgun in the air and handheld it like whip pans down as he swings the shotgun around and like shoots a bird and the shotgun just narrowly misses like Andre. It's like just right above his head that he blasts this bird. And that's just like a handheld, like whip of the camera. And then later, uh, Stepan like throws a couple punches or smacks Andre and the camera like whips with his punches as he's like knocking Andre silly in the middle of this river. Like that shit was awesome. And to me for again 1959 like very bold camera work.
0: Yeah. Well you remember of course that that kind of formalism used to get you thrown in jail. You know? Exactly. And that's right. like really you know it's like formalisms back on the table yeah and And like like, in your "Mm, intro
2: when you were talking about like Tarkovsky like man a lot of those moments like I really saw it and I was specifically thinking of Ivan's childhood and some of the very interesting camera movements and camera positions that he would set up in that film like I, I I didn't think about it Until this moment, and you'd sort of brought it up and just been like, oh, yeah. Especially the kiss in the
1: trench, you know? Exactly.
2: The kiss in the trench. I was exactly thinking of that, you know? Yeah.
1: It's just so funny going back to films specifically from this window, this like big art house boom in the late 50s and early 60s, and seeing how flamboyant they are visually because they are free and unencumbered at this point, where they think, finally, you know, there are no rules like we can be as expressive as we'd like. And this film is definitely like at the top of of that list for me for like insane, goofy 60s, late 50s, early 60s flamboyant camera work. Because uh, yeah, yeah, that camera is flying all over the place, so obsessed with light and shadow and seeing how cool they can make every frame look at any given moment.
2: Yeah. the There were so many shots, uh, like, you know, you could do a drinking game, like every time there's a shot of someone's face in the immediate foreground, like a close up. And they're like laying down, their their faces like slightly like looking up to the sky and then behind them in the background, there's either like a forest ablaze or as you described, like this smoke haze filling the horizon. I mean, like that shot of of the the contrast between extreme close ups and like extreme long shots in the same frame. Very wild shit. Like, they finally got to see Citizen Kane, I guess, after, you know, Stalin died, you know? Yeah. Well, they got
0: to see uh, Ivan the Terrible. uh, Oh, yeah. Finally. And that actually has some of those shots in it that Eisenstein did with, like, a face just at the bottom of the frame. It's Mm -hmm. crazy.
1: Yeah. But it does take me back to what you were saying, Marsh, about how you wished... That Quest for Fire was shot like hard to be a god. And I mean, I wish I wish Quest for Fire was shot like Letter Never Sent. You know, imagine uh, how it, the insane possibilities there could have been if this was as mobile of a camera. Because Quest for Fire is just pretty straightforward. It's usually pretty locked down. I did read that they pretty much got everything in one take. I mean... They're not saying a lot of stuff, so you know they get the performance down. You know, it's like yep, yeah, okay, that that grunt will do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it seemed like to me it was like they had a lot of
0: great locations, and then they shot it like they were sort of on a studio set. You know, it was like yeah. a very weird yeah. vibe. They weren't really embrace, certainly to the extent that we see in something like Letter Never Sent. They weren't really embracing. Um, it the same way you know the camera is not like panning around being like look at nature we just get like establishing shots that are very beautiful you know right
1: and and it's kind of a confusing way too i think that's actually a good point the way these films interact with nature because it is much more meaningful in letter never sent molly and i were confused watching quest for fire thinking about like where the fuck are they And how far have they gone? Because they're in what looks like desert terrain, and then suddenly they're in old-growth northwest forests. And that stuff was shot, like, in British Columbia, you know. And then the rest of it is in Kenya and then the Scottish Highlands. And those areas, none of them look alike. And when I was telling Molly, I'm like, yeah, scientists, you know, don't like this movie because they're like, oh, they live in such close proximity to each other. They would never have evolved this way. She's like, we need to close proximity. Look at how far they've gone. This movie (laughs) has showed us that they're, they're traversing continents or even then, like, even if it's just Northern Europe down all the way down into Africa or something like they're going all over the fucking place (laughs) in this movie. And again, yeah, it does feel like a little arbitrary how it's arranged and the sense of time is confusing. Well, conversely, then with Letter Never Sent, I mean, think about how expressive the landscape is used for the different sequences of the film. So, like, of course, when they find diamonds and then all of a sudden the forest is... It's, it, t- it just looks totally different because it's you, they're wandering through different trees that are more reflective of the sunlight. And it's as if all the trees have this beautiful sun glow. The forest looks white. It looks like a blinding white compared to what looked like just a standard forest full of shadow and darkness before. And then as the fire kind of grows more intense later in the film and they have to like move through the marsh and they're carrying Andre on that stretcher. And just them having to trudge through that. Um, and it feels very gothic. Like nature is, is much more, they just, there's a great deal more care and focus with how the landscape is reacting to the scenes that are actually happening (laughs) in the film as compared to Quest for Fire, where they're just like, it looks cool. No?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the poetry of it. I mean... This is is a Russian film. They 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 have they rooted their traditions of cinema in poetry. You know, going back to the very earliest days, like they 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 were like, no, movies aren't aren't novels brought to life. It's it's poetry, bro. Like that's that's the essence yeah. of our of novels cinema.
0: are too long. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: and they just I I think in in their literary traditions, they they like poets are often more revered than. The novelists are, uh, and what is Quest for Fire? It's based off some stupid French novel from 1911 <laughs> or whatever, right? Like a very, probably like shitty era for, for French literature. Like shit hadn't got like weird enough. It hadn't got like modernist enough, you know, by that point. And and, and we're well past like French romanticism or whatever. I mean, like, yeah, this is just some like ugly movie probably written by a very racist ugly french guy who like you know hated jewish people or something and i I'm, I'm projecting onto it right but again like it's ultimate statement about humanity if it has any is like really ugly it's disgusting when you step back and and look at it you know like it's gross and yeah it's it's just like a very it's it's yeah it's so clearly a book that was was brought to life because yeah. again it's it's interested in the people it's interested in them in a way that removes them from the world right the the the, the world as you described it it's just a background whereas in letter never sent like they are a part of that ecosystem yeah. they are completely mm-hmm. embedded within it and and whether through Insane superimpositions, or you know, wild-ass montages, like they become of that earth through the film. I mean, like we've been talking about the fire, right? But there's even like moments where there's just a superimposition of flames. Yeah, the flame filter, right? <laughs> and it's it, it has nothing to do with anything actually being lit on fire. Like I think when he's thinking about his wife yeah. at a certain point, there are flames. Fire with him right? The fire within the passion that he feels for this woman, right? Like, so again, like all of these elements are embedded within these humans, or these humans are also embedded within all these elements, whereas in Quest for Fire, it's all just fucking props. Like, that's all that it is. Like, you were describing all the, like, crazy changes in Letter Letter Never Sent, but like, again, what about the moment when they just suddenly wake up and they're covered in fucking snow and the character's just like winter right i mean like (laughs) as as abruptly as the fire showed up suddenly they are they're they're covered in like two feet of fucking snow and now they're trudging through horribly brutal siberian winter the extremes of all the elements are present in this film
1: yeah and it's funny i i had mentioned the the marshes that they have to move through in letter never sent. Um, And it was reminding me of the two sequences in the, in the wet marshes in quest for fire, which are definitely two of the funniest scenes uh, (laughs) in in that movie, because especially at the beginning, uh, I mean, well, really the, the ending is just so, so funny, but it is, I can't tell if it was intentional, but I like the idea that it was An an attempt to signify their intelligence for us because when they flee to try and protect the fire, they have that vessel that they carry around that seems to be made out of skin that houses a little bit of a burning flame and ember that they protect and they keep going and they take with them as they're a nomadic tribe moving around. They don't seem to really set up shop too permanently anywhere. But when they're fleeing, the uh, the the ape-like tribe that steals their fire at the beginning and gores a bunch of the men and women they they go to this like wet marshland area and they've got this like hunched over bald caveman which is also funny just like a bald caveman cuz like how, aren't they all probably like 17 like how old are any of <laughs> right. how long do cavemen live you know i thought that too um, you know <laughs> the, yeah you know, one of them has a receding hairline <laughs> it's like, like the it. elders are probably like 22 or whatever um, but th- them carrying the fire through the water they're like bring it over here <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. i don't know maybe maybe you shouldn't go that way You know, and there's like all these moments of it like constantly like about to just get dunked, you know, Uh, which does happen at the end, like exceptionally funny when they give it back to that bald guy. And there's like this whole movie is from this quest to bring the fire back and he just like drops it in the water. Yeah. Dare I say... Total dirty move yeah, right totally. there. After, After the quest God. for fire. It kind of reminded me of dirty quite a bit, Dude, to be honest. Dude, like, talk about a comment
0: on their intelligence, you know, whether purposeful or not. I was fucking losing it when they, you know, all this, this quest happens. Lord knows for how long this quest is going yeah. on. Especially because, like... They get totally sidetracked at a certain point and are like, not at all (laughs) uh, bringing the fire home. Uh, But when they finally get back, those motherfuckers are still on that tiny island (laughs) in the middle of the bog. (laughs) Like, what have... What? What? Yeah.
2: What that, have y'all been doing <laughs> while we were gone? You, yeah. know? you know, like
0: any any other caves around here? You know, maybe a better place in the middle of like what looked like winter uh than the middle of a bog? See, know? but I gotta
2: say, that's that's why for me, like when I reflected on the film, I, I was like going back to the very beginning, like, all right, this devastating thing happens. They lose their flame and they get they get run out of their area, and they are in what seems to me to be the worst possible place to just be like, well, I guess we're gonna live here now, like in the <laughs> right in the middle of a pond or whatever, you know. Like they're all up to their like Dude, what's the <laughs> idea? There are calves and water, right? And then they're like, okay, well, we need fire, so you guys go. I was thinking, like, what's keeping you here? Why don't you all go? Why don't you all just go and find fire together? Like, why, right. why even stay here? what is even the likelihood in this harsh old ass time that they're living in that you're going to send these three guys off and they're coming back, you know, like there's this, this, this idea like, well, they will definitely be coming back, That this is not a one way ticket to death. We're saying where like the common cold would probably fucking kill your ass back then. I mean, Jesus Christ. And right. And they're just like, Good luck out there. We'll just sit here in the pond or whatever, right? I mean, look at the fuck. And the fact that I mean they even find their way back. I mean, if you really want to like get nuts, because as you said, they get sidetracked, they get turned around, they get knocked out cold at various in points, quicksand. and they yeah. Get, they yeah they get they come to and they're just like, all right, that way we're going that way. Yeah. I mean, like
0: fuck's sake, at least. Fi- In letter never sent, they are constantly consulting the map, you know? Sure, Ryan, there's not a lot of jargon, but they're looking at the map, you know? These
2: cavemen, they got no map, and yet, no problem. Yeah, they go all the way to Kenya, and then they find their way back to Canada. (laughs) I mean, amazing, you know?
1: (laughs) To be fair, though, I was surprised. Maybe this wasn't, like, standard practice uh, back in the day but you know the thing with the letter never sent crew they really shouldn't have been moving around as much as they do i i was a little unclear where they were like planning on going but that's like the number one rule if you're lost and there's like a search and rescue team coming is stay stay put and i understand right early on there was like problem
0: they had a meeting place but sergey died and he knew where that was but he was the guide so like that's what fucked like the initial rescue because it was like sergey or stepan i guess we have different translations uh he knows where the meeting point is and they're like great uh you want to tell us what it is and they like can't get it you know they can't get in touch so they're uh that's like at least the initial fuck up but then i was thinking that too i was like Shouldn't they, like, find a good place and just, like, raise the flag if people are looking for them, you know?
1: Yeah, because yeah, that's the thing. I So I guess I was a little confused because there is that one moment where, like, the first time there's a flyover when one of the helicopters comes by and they're like, oh, shit, this is great. They found us. It's clear that they're not spotted because the f- smoke is too dense. Yeah. So I knew then, like, okay, their strategy is they're moving away from that. They're trying to get to an area with clearer air. Um, But they do find that. And it was really at that moment when Andre, who they've been carting along because he fucked up his foot so bad, right away, mind you, which I think is like so funny, but also kind of great, right? Because it's like in a moment of panic, you're sprinting from an inferno. When's the likelihood you're going to get an injury? Probably right away because you're panicked and you're not (laughs) thinking, you know? So yeah, he sprains his ankle. It's like the first thing he does. But yeah, it gets worse. So they have to carry him throughout the landscape. And it was at that moment when he tells them just let me die like you know go on i'd rather you all live to me my immediate reaction was this is a blessing in disguise like stay with him just sit tight you know like Mm -hmm. you guys should that the sky's clear you should probably stop moving around you know build a big fire yeah and, and these people actually had the means probably to make fire very
2: easily. I mean, they were yes. like smoking Zippo. cigarettes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> wouldn't be too hard to get a little fire going and warm Andre up. But but he does kind of like preempt them by just like when they fall asleep, like crawling off and drowning himself in, a, in, a, right. in another bog or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, kind of a curious thing. I I agree with you, and I, I maybe that's a little bit more of like a modern understanding, Ryan, of yeah, survival yeah. and that sort of thing, you know. But but yeah, it did occur to me again, also, like why are you going all the way up into like the fucking mountains of of like going into Siberia? I mean, it, at one point, it really did look like they were going like up a fucking mountain uh, when the snow was was falling. But yeah.
1: I also thought it was just really curious that they left the radio behind. I understand that in certain respects, it's extremely heavy. It didn't work. And it didn't work, but they were receiving information. I mean, I know they didn't, like, know where they were because they lost the guy who was, like, really familiar with the map, but I mean... Hey, they dropped everything they had, you know, uh, as the
0: journey progresses. Yeah, you they, know? They, yeah. One bag after another, one scene right. after another. Right. I'm sure, you know, they felt it was necessary, and maybe yeah, you yeah, would, and, you too, know, if you be. were. I shouldn't scrutinize uh, tra- them too much. Trapped in the Siberian forest fire. This guy goes on a couple hikes and thinks he can yeah, no, uh, I, I, survive I been... in the taiga. That's
1: also, so, like that's I would have like been like the a... guy who sprained his ankle right away. I would
2: have been so toast. <laughs> I mean that's also a Soviet era like military radio that probably weighed like 50 fucking pounds. Yeah, on I know. I know.
1: I, yeah, I acknowledge <laughs> that it was probably
0: exceptionally heavy. <laughs> I mean they were tough as fuck, dude. They carried a person across that like, you know, a man yeah. and a woman carried another man across that landscape. Right. Uh, very far, you know, even when he was begging to die.
1: Which they had to do for the other dorky guy. That's true both dorky guys. In these movies, um, take a pretty significant hit and then have to be carried around by their compatriots. That's true. You've got Andre that sprains his ankle and then gets, you know, they have to cart him around. But um, I don't know if it was Gaw or Gruff or, <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> which one it was, but the the one who was not Everett McGill or Ron Perlman, he gets in a, a hell of a tussle with a bear um, in a great, like, don't talk to my son ever again. Moment because they like yeah. hear a noise in a cave and they see a beautiful, cute little brown bear, and then the mother shows up and just really does a number on him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then that's like the last leg of their journey, but I mean, yeah, he's like pretty significantly messed up. Um, but does pull through, you know, thanks to them, like, licking his wounds. Yeah, literally <laughs> Just, like, licking. Literally licking them, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: all the licking is great. Although, Ryan, did you notice, you know, that uh, Ray Don Chong, like, does, like, poultice, you know, on his nuts in, uh, in the...
2: Did I notice? Fire? What do you mean? It was a whole scene. Oh, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on. And I, we haven't, like, brought that up, but, like, yeah, holy that's, shit. Like, I
1: the mean, the great moment of the film. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, they get into a fight with one of these, you know, with the, privy, with the cannibal, yeah, with the cannibal tribe, and Everett McGill gets like tackled by one of them, and it's kind of like an agonizing moment where, like, it's being set up, like this guy's about to fucking bite me, and and we see it coming, like he's gonna go for this guy's yeah, dick, he's going down on, him. like what the fuck, man, and like I honestly was like. Okay, he bit his dick off. Like, yeah. that's what happened here, you know? And Everett McGill's like, kind of like, for the next like you know, five, <laughs> to minutes, he's like, sort of doubled over, like, oh, rough. and I was just, I keep cringing, man. I was just like, man, he got, this motherfucker got his damn dick bit off by one of the cannibals. But Raydon Chong whips together a magic she poultice. Knows, knows magic.
1: Yeah. That's when they fall
2: in love. Right. Cause she gives him the poultice, she puts it on his, his, his dick. So it wasn't bit off. Okay. Fair enough. It, it just flesh was a, wound. a flesh wound, right? But again, not too shortly after that, there, yeah, he forces himself on her in one of those primal moments. And I was thinking like, you really up for yeah. this? after? He recovered? Yeah, no? that's was a pretty quick recovery after, you know, what I imagined was probably a very devastating bite. I mean... It looks bad. It, it looked really Time bad.
1: Time is very slippery in this movie. Yeah. I kind of got the sense that they had to have been away for over a year. Right.
2: But I, I also just even question that choice. Like, why bite him on the dick? Like, why write that in the screen? Like, then he gets bit on the dick. Like, of all the places.
0: Because that's the devastating blow.
2: I mean, it's a you very gotta devastating you got to take a man down. That's blow, what you do. Yeah. Just seems like an odd choice, you know, to go right there for for what? For <laughs> he's what
1: immediately happened. incapacitated. <laughs> yeah,
0: Look, everyone's got their go to moves
1: in a scrum, you know. And this guy, uh, he—he's a cannibal. Yeah, he's got no principles. He's gonna—he's gonna be the the dirtiest fighter of them all. Yeah, I guess. But I yeah, guess. no, of course. I I noticed when she applied the poultice. Um, <laughs> It's a very tender moment in an otherwise ruthless film. Yeah,
2: she fixed his dick, (laughs) so then he fell in love with her. I
1: mean, that's right. right. It's kind of beautiful. Oh, God.
2: That's one word for it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my notes, I wrote, uh, Cannibal Campfire Bites Everett's McGill. (laughs) I just
2: think I wrote, Holy fuck, bites his fucking dick off, because I was sure that
1: he bit that thing
2: right off. Like... I mean, look at that guy's <laughs> jaw! Holy guacamole! Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah, man. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird, strange, gross, funny movie. I mean, it's
1: yeah. Another moment I like really laughed at, in in that sense of like real primal energy. I did think it was extremely funny when they saw way out in the distance what looked like a, a herd of antelope. And when it, like, cut back to them, they were literally salivating. Yeah. It was almost like a waterfall of saliva falling out of their mouths because yeah. they were so hungry. That was a nice touch. Yeah, that this, red meat yeah, feeling. This, is, this is just,
2: like, one of those movies that I think you, you have fun with regardless of whether you're laughing with it or laughing at it, you know? Like, yeah. it works on both levels. Like, you can view this thing as like an odd disaster of a film like just question every single decision that was made or you can just be like man i'm so glad that somebody made something like this you know there's there's nothing there's nothing like it and there's like from classic hollywood there was like a, a, a i feel like a string of you know 10,000 years BC and they they had some like caveman movies back then, but it was always like, Not like fucking this. tab hunter in a loincloth looking chiseled. You know, it wasn't yeah. gnarly and gross like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I am definitely in the latter camp. I walked away from this movie. So glad that somebody made it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, dude. I just look at my notes and I just see like having some cum
0: drink. <laughs> 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 like, I mean there's some shit in there like when Ever McGill gets I guess like captured by her tribe and he's sort of like put up in this like banquet suite yeah. where he gets like all the <laughs> treats he wants and then they force him uh, to like have sex with all like the plump prosperous women in the tribe. Yeah they like, stud him out. <laughs> yeah it, dude it's awesome because like on the Wikipedia it says like they put him through a series of humiliations and I'm thinking like I don't think he found that very humiliating that no. he uh, no, got he to have a, like about a it. huge banquet every night in his hut and just have constant sex like yeah that caveman was humiliated <laughs> by that
1: experience <laughs> you know like, I mean, it was funny. <laughs> it's funny like we keep talking about this movie too like the hero's journey and all these traditional Hollywood tropes that has to be one of the funniest plant and pays off in any movie ever where the first woman that comes in to receive the stud everett mcgill she's laying on her back and then it's when the higher-ups in the tribe realize like oh this guy doesn't know like how to fuck like a gentleman doesn't know the signal yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) that they tell her to like get on her knees so he like understands what he's supposed to be doing so i think it's very funny that like that's the plan and then the payoff is later it's through true love you know he's taught what missionary, the missionary position is.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that's so exactly funny. what happens in
0: this motion picture. Yeah. yeah,
2: it also explains why when his friends then go to like rescue him, he's got he a doesn't really want to go. Yeah, he's gone full native, dude. Like you said, like he saw them make fire; they they suddenly became like gods to him.
1: And they have
2: weapons. They got weapons. They got those like uh, those like spear thrower things. That they Yeah. Using. I mean, that
1: food probably tasted so much better. They probably have recipes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, not yeah. just heating it up and eating it. They probably like have ingredients and spices. Cool clothes. If they could, if they could make pottery, they had like good meals. <laughs> yeah. I would want to stay too. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was like, just fucking stay
2: here, you know? Yeah.
0: And that like f- is, uh, you know, something else that pays off when they when they return and the other members of their, you know, the the clearly evil members of the tribe that are signaled at the beginning uh, as being sort of jealous of the trio that gets to go on this fire journey. Also, why not just send two groups or just all go, like we discussed? <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they they, you know, of course, like. They confront these these guys, and then they're just flinging arrows into them. just yeah. they fuck them up with the the new
2: modern tech. They get wrecked. <laughs> yeah. Dude. so yeah, that's what I mean. Like this movie is just like, like, that's also then this odd moment of being like, man, aren't weapons great? Like, you know, isn't aren't advancements in military technology awesome? <laughs> Look what you got out of this moment. Yeah, I this mean, is like if someone
0: watched 2001, A Space Odyssey, and they were like, the beginning is my favorite
2: part. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. I should have had two hours of just that.
1: the movie the movie sucked when they left you know for space or whatever yeah i would i would be lying if i didn't say that that was something that had crossed my mind (laughs) in one of the few times i've seen 2001 was thinking like i kind of wish it was just this (laughs) well you got your wish i did i did so i'm very grateful for that Yeah, yeah you sure did whereas uh on the other
0: hand you know uh in Letter Never Said, I think my most impressed I was about the fire was when uh, our guy at the end creates, uh, Constantine creates a fire on a raft made out of ice, a tree but with ice over it. And then he builds a fire on the ice raft. Yeah. Who knew that Dude, anything like that was possible?
2: That's wild. I was really, like, scrutinizing that because, like, he's going down the rapids with this little, like, you know, bonfire on the front of his, like, ice log raft. And there's, like, water, like, rushing at times over it. And that fire stayed lit, you know? I was very, very impressed by that. That was yeah. A- amazing. Yeah know, and maybe they—they they clearly had like a little gas line yep. set up
1: on, on that rig
2: for the <laughs> to
1: keep that thing lit. Still, a man—a man that made it through World War II. You know, the resourceful men. Well, you see, that's the point to me of the film. Ultimately,
2: is is again, you know, this regardless of I think even the the, the political readings or you know these questions of is it critical or not. You know, the real diamonds of the movie are the soviets the the real diamonds are the people a diamond is forged through intense heat and intense pressure and that's exactly what they go through
0: <laughs> and a diamond is forever
2: and a diamond is forever
0: james bond said that <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: now did you guys also think that of course like the irony of this whole thing is that the letter uh
2: was indeed received yeah the letter would eventually have been sent and received because you know he does he does live he does live so the letter that was being written we certainly don't see it get sent but
0: he well would but, have but isn't there well but then there's you
1: know? sergey's letter doesn't get sent
0: no no. Exactly. And also Andre's suicide note, uh, also a letter, you know? We got but multiple sent. letters. I think,
2: though, he kind of sent that one because they read it, you know, and they were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, he fucking died. They were like, where are received. you? Message yeah. <laughs> received. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. You know what's funny is, again, like I said, I, I owned a copy of this movie. I'd seen it before. I, I really loved it. But when I was, like, sitting down and reflecting – like before I watched it, I was like, yeah, and they all die in the movie. And that's why the letter is never sent. Right. But I, I forgot, I totally forgot about that. The ending where he's like rescued. I almost was like, Am I watching a different version? But I was watching my DVD, and right. I seem to remember <laughs> them all dying and like dying heroically uh, in dude, this in this mission. You so, forgot about
0: the death hallucination of a prosperous industrial Soviet
2: Union. Diamond City, I mean. yeah. dude, yeah. <laughs> dude, Diamond City. I love Diamond <laughs> City, which again, visually speaking, is like. Nuts! I mean, the, there's like six superimpositions going on at like the same time in, in crazy in several yeah. Of those frames.
0: Yeah, nothing yeah. left to do but put the camera on a helicopter or hot air balloon and uh, send it up into the sky.
2: Take it away, <laughs> dude! I do love the bookends, you know, of the like the helicopter shots because again, like I think when you watch this movie once and you go back and and you watch it again, like that opening like hits so. It hits so different uh, because this time around, when the helicopter's pulling back, when they're all dropped off, and there's just this prolonged shot of the four of them in, you know, now the middle of like the wilderness, waving at the camera as it pulls back in this like long helicopter shot. I was like, bye. Like they're all they're waving goodbye, right? They're they're saying goodbye. And the music is very somber. In that moment, it's a very like elegiac kind of theme to the to the soundtrack there. And and again, you know, I sort of prepped; I'd already seen it before, so I more or less knew what happened. But but yeah, at the very end, we get another helicopter shot pulling out. We get bookends
0: in Quest for Fire as well. The shot of the fire in the cave in the distance. The same image opens and closes
1: the film. And talking about intentionality, it's funny, though. I did read that in Quest for Fire, that shot was a, just a test image that they never intended to use for the film. And afterwards, they're like, oh, that looks pretty cool. And they decided to bookend the film with and the marketing it. So, materials
0: <laughs> became the film
1: itself. yeah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, wow. yeah. Well, I guess you know, I'm sufficiently toasty. <laughs> I guess yeah, it's you know, getting pretty warm in here. Yeah, I, I was would... warmed by the the flames of both of these films. I enjoyed the quest. I think we we found them. Came out uh, as survivors. Andy, what are what's another film that you know when you think about Hot Fire uh, comes to mind?
2: <sighs> well, you know what's funny uh, again. Um when i picked the topic and i was sort of like thinking about my movies like letter never sent was one of the first ones that popped into my head i was yeah. gonna be like oh i'm all set on my throwback because i'm just gonna yeah. be like letter never sent's great you've Scoop, never seen yeah. Letter, yeah you, you you scooped me dude you i've got seen it. letter never Sents, it's great yeah it's, it's an <laughs> awesome fire movie i mean folks it's a good fire movie um but i guess some of the other ones and and you know like i said earlier it's it's like well if you think about a lot of like fire movies because like really i could say oh you want cool fire just just look at the extended filmography of like don simpson and jerry Bruckheimer. like those dudes knew pyrotechnics right whether in something like con air or you know like top gun you're gonna see cool ass explosions bad boys yeah <laughs> bad <just> boys. <laughs> huge fireballs you know illuminating characters like that that shit's cool but um I think like specifically movies that that are really focused on fire. I, I I think Ryan isn't a big fan of this one, but but I have a big soft spot in my heart for it. I I love the Towering Inferno. Oh, yeah. Like I well, just I've never think, seen
1: it. Oh, I
2: thought I heard you talking shit about it once, where you were like, "the nah, fucking Towering Inferno" or whatever. <laughs> it
1: was probably I was probably being like, "I don't want to watch that garbage." Yeah, no, <laughs> I
2: I actually really like that movie. I think for like. That the slew of like seven the, the 70s like disaster cycle that that was very popular for a while. I think the Towering Inferno is like definitely one of the best, if not my favorite of them. I mean, like Airport's cool, but I'd rather watch the Towering Inferno. And and maybe just simply because I think it's the only team-up of Paul Newman and Steve McQueen in cinema history. Like those two absolute kings of cool getting to share the screen like that's pretty cool plus you got oj running around as a security guard that's pretty funny and i think you get to see robert wagner like just totally like burst into flames at some point so that might be fun as well but yeah towering inferno i think like i mean man i think it won academy awards for its like special effects um because they're pretty damn impressive it's a very fun movie um but another one that actually i think i would have maybe picked if, if I was up, but it would have to me been kind of bucking against the topic would be, uh, toby hooper's spontaneous combustion because yeah, even though that's that. the
0: premise it crossed my mind but i was like we saved that for ryan's oppenheimer Are we you know?
2: <laughs> yeah yeah because even though that's like the premise is like spontaneous human combustion if you think about it there's isn't a lot of like bursting into flames yeah. in the movie right, right. like it's yeah, it's much. mostly just brad dorf like melting from the inside out right. so. yeah, just
1: <laughs> catching fire yeah yeah <laughs> totally totally
2: uh, those are definitely two I would I would certainly recommend.
1: Well,
0: it was Andy's topic this week, but next week
1: it is Ryan's topic. What's up? Well, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, we did lose a titan. Cormac McCarthy has has passed on. Uh, one of my favorite authors. I've talked about him enough on the podcast. So I, you know, I didn't want to do like a tribute to him. I thought it'd be too obvious, but I was thinking about him and I was thinking about, um, a film I have not seen in a very long time, probably since it came out. And that is The Counselor. Uh, and I remember it being like a very curious and strange film. And I just remembered thinking like, ah, oh, it's just so, it's so striking when a novelist writes the screenplay for a film. And then I thought, oh, that could be a fun uh avenue to explore next week so the topic next week is the novelist's film so bring me films where the screenplays are written by someone who's primarily a novelist uh and not traditionally a screenwriter and let's see what they they draft it up
2: damn that's gotta be fun from script to screen hey <laughs> there you go dude <laughs>
0: As always, you can follow us on Twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks
1: everyone. Tania В будущем вам придется не раз сдерживать клятвы. Клятвы. А разве в детстве не перед пионерским знаменем? Все было так торжественно и важно.
2: Юный пионер Советского Союза. Перед
1: товарищи, Торжественный клянусь.
0: Бывает, что человеку
2: за всю жизнь даже не приходится вспоминать эти слова. Просто не требуется.